as we start our study this morning, I want to teach you or possibly remind you about an important theological concept, and that is known as the sufficiency of Scripture. You might remember it if you were in the theology class. The sufficiency of Scripture is a vital, fundamental doctrine of Christianity. Unfortunately, it's not something that gets a lot of attention. The sufficiency of Scripture is a doctrine that falls under the category of bibliology. That's the study of the Bible. And it teaches, very simply, that the Bible has given us everything we need in order to be saved and in order to honor God. So 2 Peter 1, 3 says, we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. This is reflected in our membership covenant, which says in the first line, I believe that the 66 books of the Bible are God's inspired, true, and authoritative word, sufficient for transforming believers into who God wants them to be. So theologically, we talk about the authority of God's word, the clarity of God's word, the necessity of God's word, but this is a separate category, but related and connected, and that is the sufficiency of God's word. It is true that God's word is necessary, but necessary and sufficient are two different things. To say the Bible is sufficient is to say that it is enough. For example, if I tell you to go bake a traditional birthday cake, eggs would be a necessary ingredient but they're not sufficient. You need more than just eggs to make a cake. But if I gave you a bag of oranges and said, go home and make fresh squeezed oranges, you have everything you need in that bag of oranges. You don't need anything else. Oranges are sufficient for fresh squeezed orange juice. So to say that scriptures are sufficient means that in the Bible, we have been given everything we need. And tied to the clarity of scripture, it's plain to us. There's no secret hidden message that only some people can understand. What God intended you and I to know is accessible to us, and that is all we need to move us in the right direction. The sufficiency of Scripture is also what's behind the announcement regarding biblical counseling. There's no topic in life that isn't addressed in Scripture. We can, we can uh, confront issues in this life with the Scriptures. There's no spiritual problem or issue that the Bible doesn't discuss or help us with. If you want to honor God, if you want to conquer sin, if you want to be saved, and if you want to grow in the love of God, the peace of God, the joy of God, you want more of that, you have everything you need right here in the word of God. You just need to give yourself to know it and to study it. This book is enough. Psalm 19, seven through nine, for example, says the word of God is perfect or complete. It's whole. And then it tells us there that this is what revives our soul. This is what brings wisdom. This is what um, brings enlightenment. And then at the end there, it says the word of God endures forever. Unfortunately, there have always been people claiming to follow God who either explicitly or implicitly communicate that this is not enough. We need something more. In the early days of Christianity, there were people adding to Christ's commands for the church. You had the Judaizers saying we need to follow the Old Testament laws. And then specifically, if you read the letter to the Colossians, that's what Paul is confronting because the message of Colossians is Christ is supreme. Christ is enough. You have everything you need in Christ. And other people were being pulled into the worship of angels, it says, asceticism, so following strict dietary rules as if this was going to give them some boost in their spirituality. 
There were people claiming they had hidden knowledge and that was going to move them to some other level of spirituality that a couple generations or centuries later became what we call Gnosticism. Today, we usually don't call people Gnostics, but we do tend to refer to people as experts or, or gurus. There are gurus dealing with all kinds of things in the Christian life and in the church. We have experts on church planting. We have experts on church growth. We have gurus on parenting. We have experts telling you how to find the perfect spouse. We have experts on prayer and evangelism. And when someone accurately teaches and applies the Bible to some aspect of life, that's a good thing. We we should learn from that. We should be edified by that. We read books from those people. But when someone begins to ignore or change or subvert or or work around what the Bible teaches, that's dangerous because then you've got someone elevating their authority over the authority of Scripture. And usually, they give the impression that they have some inside information that apart from them, you would never know. That is an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. I mention this to you because it's not specifically mentioned in the passage, but First and Second Timothy is tied with the importance of the Word of God and giving our attention to it. And it's important to understand that when it comes to planting churches and organizing churches, we don't have to do a lot of guesswork. God has told us everything we need to know. He's given us his structure. His design is that a local church be led by, by a group of qualified elders or pastors That doesn't mean it's wrong if a church doesn't have elders, but I think I I would put it this way. uh, The the healthiest churches are moving in that direction. Uh, You read Acts 13. Paul goes with Barnabas on a missionary journey. He preaches. People come to faith, and churches are planted. They are local churches, but they don't have elders. But in Acts chapter 14, they go back on their trip, and he says, let's go back to the churches, and let's appoint elders. That was an important part of organizing the church, and that's what we saw in Titus 1.5. I left you there to finish what remains, put it in order, and you do that by appointing elders. So in chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Timothy, we're given principles, we're given instructions concerning how elders are to be selected. And from what, what I tried to show you is that those commands are not confusing. They're not as specific maybe as we would like at times, but they're not confusing. God is a God of order. A lot of the confusion that comes up comes because of the culture seeking to undo what, what God has told us. You end up with churches saying, no, we're Christian churches, we, we teach the Bible, and every word is from God. But then they change the meaning of certain passages, and that, that frankly, is confusing. And just in thinking about church structure, you should know there are all kinds of denominations and churches. There are churches that totally ignore church structure. They have no pastors whatsoever, no, no, denom- no, uh, no um, clergy at all. So there are some, um, uh, some brethren churches will do that. There, there's one church I know specifically that because of these discussions with women pastors, just it seems like they just said, we're getting rid of pastors altogether. Everybody's a minister, you know, senior minister, executive minister, discipleship minister, and whatever other titles they want to give, whatever, whatever kinds of ministers. You know, you, you make that change, and, and in my opinion, that, that doesn't answer the question. It just adds more confusion. What is that? They're, they're a minister, but does that mean they're a pastor? Does that mean they're an elder? Does that mean they're... A deacon, what is that role? The Bible speaks of two clear offices or roles in the church. And number one, you have the elders. We've already covered them. They're the overseers or the pastors. 
Number two, we have the role of the deacons, and that's going to be our focus for today. We're starting in chapter 3, verse 8, and similar to last week, I'm going to organize our time around some basic, hopefully helpful questions. Verse 8 says, deacons likewise. First word there in our translation is deacons. So the first question we start with is, who are the deacons? Who is this group of people. Deacons is, is a religious term. If you grew up in the church, you might be familiar with it. But if you never grew up in church, if you never read the Bible, you would have no clue what this word means. And for those of us who grew up in church, we have to understand that we may have an understanding of deacons, but it's not necessarily aligned with scripture. When I was a kid, my idea of deacons was scary men who wore ties and you did not want to get them mad at you. That was my idea. No, they're deacons, you know administrators like like the like the dean or the principal what does the bible say about who deacons are i think one of the most helpful ways to answer that question is simply to contrast them with the elders the elders like we said are the recognized teachers and leaders of a local church they're the pastors the overseers the deacons on the other hand are the formally recognized servants in a church That's what a deacon is. It's an officially recognized servant. Elders are officially recognized leaders, teachers, pastors. Um, Deacons, though, are recognized servants. We know deacons are distinct from elders because it's a whole separate paragraph. We just read about the elders in the first paragraph, and now we come to deacons. This This is a different group. And they need to be separate. There there are some churches where they function, they call men deacons, but they're functioning as pastors, and it really just adds to the confusion. This is a separate group. If you look one more time in verse 8, it says deacons likewise. And likewise, some translations have it as in the same way. It's the same meaning. There's a distinction we make between elders and deacons, but there also are some connections. And the connection Paul wants to make here is that this is a position or this is an office in the church But like the elders, it has certain requirements. You're not supposed to just start giving this title out to whoever wants it. And you can't just invent your own criteria. Let's make this person a deacon. Need the right people. The Greek word for deacon is diakonos. It's just what's called a transliteration. We just take the Greek and pronounce it in English. It literally means a person who serves or a person who ministers. So it's a servant or a minister. It was even used literally in the New Testament times for a waiter, someone who brought food to a table. We know in a general sense, everybody in the church is called to serve. Ephesians 4 says elders are placed, pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So all of us are servants, all of us are ministers. So in the New Testament, when you look at the Greek and you read the word diakonos, sometimes that word gets translated servant or minister. But when we're confident that the word diakonos is referring not to just everybody in the church or a generic servant, but to this office in the church, in order to make that clear, most translations use the word deacon. So you could even say they're servants with, with a capital S. So they're, they're recognized servants. And here, I think it's clear that he's discussing an office. He says elders, then he says deacons, Likewise, I think the other clear passage is Philippians 1.1. Paul addresses the letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And then he adds, with the overseers and deacons. So there's some group in a church known as the deacons. Overseers are the pastors, they're the elders. They're the recognized leaders and teachers. The deacons are the recognized servants. 
Again, hopefully it seems basic, but there are plenty of churches who either don't understand that or, or, or who want to change the design that we were given in the New Testament. Deacons are not, there's no indication in the Bible that a deacon is some kind of elder in training. And there's no indication in the Bible that they're supposed to be a, a, some second-ranking pastor, that they are simply servants in the church. And similar to what we said about a husband and a wife or elders in the rest of the church, the difference between elders and deacons has nothing to do with value. It has nothing to do with worth in the church. The difference is simply their function. They fill different roles. An elder, being an elder does not mean you're necessarily more mature than, than every deacon. It's simply a different gifting. It's a different contribution that's necessary for the strength and the health of a church. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So God in his grace has shown himself through the body of Christ and the way that we serve each other showcases the different aspects of God's grace and we serve differently. Paul, Peter continues, he says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think Peter's distinction in his gifts is a helpful one. It, talk, it helps us think through how we serve in the church. We're all supposed to be working. We're all supposed to be serving for the glory of God in Christ. And some will do so in a way that's more pronounced in relation to speaking they might teach, they might, uh, they might teach formally, they might informally encourage and exhort. Others are going to have a more pronounced ministry of service. And we see that even in the corporate world. You go to a school and there are administrators and principals and teachers, and then you have, you have janitors. These are vital parts of, of an organization, of a hospital. I think in general, we could say that the office of elder is going to lean more into the first category, that is speaking, and the office of the deacon is going to lean more into the second category, which is that of service, because that's what the word deacon means, to serve. If a man, for example, is growing in the Lord, and he begins to think about how to best serve in his church, and he wants to take on some official role, he has some desire to do that, how would he know if he should be an elder or a deacon? I think one simple way is to ask himself, what does he see himself doing to serve others primarily? What's his ideal ministry position? Is it a speaking role or is it a serving role? I would ask a man, which do you feel more inclined to do? And we see this principle real early in the church in Acts chapter 6. Remember Acts chapter 5? You kids, I think, did the lesson already on Ananias and Sapphira. That's a, a vivid reminder of holy, the necessity of holiness. But that's not, it's also a reminder that problems aren't new to the local church. Chapter 5 is Ananias and Sapphira. Chapter 6 begins with a problem regarding the Greek-speaking widows. They're being discriminated against at the daily distribution, probably of food, and it makes, you know, the word gets to the apostles. They need to address it. It's a serious problem because this is between the Greek widows and the Hebrew widows. And this is threatening the unity of the church. So the apostles gather everybody. And here's what they say. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit, full of the spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So it's not that they don't care about the problem. They're not trying to just, you know, ignore what's happening. They just want some other group to address it so they can focus on what they've been called to do. Nowhere in here is anyone called an elder or a deacon. The church has just begun. There's no formalized structure in place yet. But we do get a helpful principle. You don't want to get sidetracked from your primary calling in life. The apostles say it. Our job is to preach and to teach and to pray. Again, it's not that they don't care about the widows or about this problem, but imagine you got 3,000 people come to faith, you got 5,000 people come to faith, so a church of over 8,000 people, there's some serious work needed to serve food. This is going to be a big distraction to what they normally do. So when a church is organized well, having a qualified group of elders, teachers, pastors is a good thing, but the work of the elders is going to be even more enhanced and focused when you have a qualified group of deacons serving as well. So the second question then is, what do they do? What is their assigned responsibility? There's a lot we covered and a lot you can study in the Bible regarding the role of the elders. What about deacons? We're not going to find much. The only real answer to the question, what do deacons do, is what you find in their name. They, They serve. There's no specific answer given to us in the Bible. They are simply recognized servants. But along that line, I want to give an example that I hope explains some of the way deacons might work, but also the benefit they provide to a church. You guys know, most of you know, I was a, a waiter. And after a couple of years of become, being a waiter, I, they, they made me a shift lead. And what difference does that make? Well, I earned a quarter more an hour, but I wasn't a manager. I had all the same responsibilities that every other waiter had But I was given some title that meant I could be trusted by the leadership and that others who served in the same position I served could trust me. So I was responsible to help other waiters who needed it. I helped train new waiters. Sometimes I helped the managers take care of small things with the staff. And in that sense, I was acting as a sort of buffer between management and everybody else um, in, in, in the front of house. If there was something really, really important, the management dealt with that. That wasn't my responsibility. But if there's something I could help another server with, they could come talk to me. Again, I was, I was a buffer. And I also served as an example. I was supposed to serve as an example to everybody else, at least the other servers. That's kind of the way and the benefit of having deacons. They give to the congregation an example of service, but they also provide people that the congregation go to personally with issues that maybe would be distracting to the elders. More important than what specifically the deacons did in the New Testament church, the passage we're looking at today deals with their qualifications. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. This is the last question. What are the requirements? What does it take to be a deacon? As we talk about this, I want you to think not just about current deacons or future deacons. I want you to just think about this for all of us. Deacons, again, are examples of servants, and we're all called to serve. So as we go through these qualifications, just think this is the kind of life God wants you and I to have. This is gonna, if we pursue these things in our own life, this is gonna greatly improve the health and the effectiveness of our church. 
What are the qualifications? Let me read just for today, verses 8 through 10. It says this, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them serve also, I'm sorry, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. I'm going to summarize that into six characteristics, each just one word. Number one, a deacon should be dignified. And you see that right there in the ESV. A deacon should be dignified. The, the, the word refers to a type of reverence. Maybe another translation would be seriousness. It's very much connected to the idea that Paul has for the elders when he said they are to be above reproach. The idea is that this man is respectable, which he should obviously respect others, but the point is he is worthy of respect. He is honorable. You don't want to press that too far and say he needs to be a serious man who never laughs, never smiles. That was my idea as a child of deacons. It's not that. But it's someone who takes their work seriously, and maybe it helps to think about the opposite. The opposite would be someone who's childish, frivolous, carefree, You give a kid a job to do and then they're running around in circles, playing with their shoes, chasing after butterflies. We see this, I think, growing more in our culture, people who don't take work seriously. How many times have you gone to a store, you go to a restaurant, and you got the idea that this person who's supposed to be helping you, that's their job, just doesn't care to do what they're supposed to be doing. They don't take their work seriously. How does that make you feel? Frankly, that's just irritating. It's annoying. You, you want someone who does good work. I was telling my wife yesterday or two years ago, the last two or three times I went through a drive-through, the person on the other end of the speaker, just something in the tone of their voice and the way they greeted me, it just conveyed to me they cared about their job. And, and just, it just stood out because it seemed like that isn't the norm now. They took their job seriously. And, and I appreciated that that, that that stood out especially contrasted with some of the other people you might get at other jobs. Well, that seriousness is what God expects from all of us. The Bible says we should work heartily as unto the Lord. So whatever it is you're doing on Sunday mornings or to serve the church, you, you want to do it seriously. Again, not serious in the sense that you never smile. We do it with joy. But you care about what you're doing. You care about doing it well. I remember we'd have the youth car washes and youth are great at gathering and playing with soap and water. But when Amana Carmen's car came, I remember Derek said, I'm helping wash this car. You know, we want to make sure her car was actually clean, not just, you know, lathered a little bit. We want to do our job seriously. So whatever you're doing, whether you're cleaning up a spill, whether you're teaching kids, whether you're helping serve someone coffee or make coffee or setting up or tearing down tables, you want to do that seriously. And if the church is going to recognize someone for their work, if they're going to make them some kind of leader in a ministry, then it better be someone who takes their job seriously. Number two, a deacon should also be honest. So he should be dignified and he should be honest. The ESV translation says in the negative, not double-tongued. Not double-tongued. It's a distinct word. I think it's only used here in the New Testament. The idea is you don't want someone who says one thing one time or to one group of people and then the next day or to a different set of people says something totally different. We want someone who is trustworthy. Today will be all restaurant analogies, I think, but you go into a restaurant and you say, how long's the wait? Five minutes. 
So you wait four minutes, and then you're, you're ready to go, and then it's five minutes, and then it's six, and then it's seven, and then it's 10, and around 15 minutes, you're saying, what, what's the deal, right? That, that, that's irritating again. And why do they do that? Some places they're taught, well, you just shave the shortest because as long as they sit, they're going to eat. Because once, if it's a 15-minute wait, they've already made it 10, they're not going to leave. you got their business. And you think, just tell me up front so I can make a decision. i got kids. i got things to do. Just be honest. Nobody likes to be lied to, right? You don't feel like you're being cheated. How much worse is that for the church of Jesus Christ? You don't want people serving who act like the stereotypical used car salesman. Just trying to get something out of you, deceiving you, stringing you along. You don't want con men working in the church. You want people who are honest. You want people who are trustworthy. So Paul says to Timothy, who's going to lead the church there in Ephesus, you want deacons who are dignified or serious. You want someone who is honest. Number three, you want someone who's sober. Or to use the term used for the elders, sober-minded. Here, it's a longer phrase. He says, not addicted to much wine. Wine was what everybody drank back then. Water could have been contaminated. There was bacteria. Wine was, was um, cleansed of that so because of the alcohol in it. And it was, it was the normal drink. It was typically watered down. But if you wanted to spend a long time, you could sit there and love wine and drink wine, and you were characterized like you would be today as a drunkard. Can you imagine what it would do to the testimony of Christ if you invited your friend and they drove up and they were greeted that morning in the parking lot and the guy is either drunk or hungover? That's not a good showing. Jesus loves sinners, we know that. But he called them to repentance. He called them to transformation. There was a poem I remember reading in in high school. We had to study the poem and the opening line said, the whiskey on your breath could make a young boy dizzy. It was called My Papa's Waltz. That was the name of the poem. The, imagine, if you can't, you're going to say that about a deacon? You know, my kid's woozy just because the deacon says hello and, you know, the fumes are coming out. That, that, that's a problem. We would say the same thing about anybody showing up to church high on any other kind of drug. That's not someone who's sober-minded. Can you imagine, hey, deacon, I need help. Uh, you know, a pipe has burst in my house. Come over. Oh, I can't drive right now. Call somebody else. Paul is not just talking about uh, your behavior when you come to church. He's giving a description about the man's life in general. This needs to be someone who is known and marked by self-control, particularly when it comes to alcohol. We would say any other substances that are going to govern or control their mind. Requirement number four is that a deacon be content. You want a man who has demonstrated contentment in his life. At the end of verse 8, here's the phrase. It says, he must not be greedy for dishonest gain. When someone becomes an elder or a deacon, sometimes that's going to be connected to a specific ministry or function in the church, and that means access to the finances of the church. And there's always the possibility that someone put in that kind of position will use that position, that privilege, for their own advantage. In the corporate world, that's called fraud or embezzlement or theft. You know, my boss, he he loves my kids. And I think if he knew I was spending the company credit card to buy them Christmas gifts, I think he'd be okay with that. I don't even need to ask him. That's stealing. That's that's not what the company credit card is intended for. That is a, a misuse of company funds. 
Well, that's the temptation. You have the, the, the same qualification listed for elders, and it's listed here now. In, in, in uh, First Peter, it says it as well. And now it's here for the deacons. You're going to place someone in a position of managing finances or resources. How do you prevent them from misusing that? How do you prevent them from abusing their position for their own benefit? Well, you, you can't just never trust anyone. That's not going to work. You need to find someone who's trustworthy. You need to find someone who's content with what they have. You make sure you have someone who's not going to compromise their integrity because they want more money. Again, back to the restaurant. There were plenty, maybe a handful of people while I was there, servers and managers who had lost their job because they're taking money. Taking money off someone else's tables, busboys taking money that were intended for the servers. Managers, if you pay in cash, giving discounts to the table after you pay so they pocket the extra money. That is not what you want in an elder nor in a deacon. Paul actually gives it uh, this, this, this phrase, uh, at least the, the idea of it for, for elders in, in Titus 1. So it applies to both offices, elders and deacons. You want someone who's dignified, who takes their world seriously. You want someone who's honest. You want someone who's sober. You want someone who's content with what they have. Number five, you want someone who is holy. That's a, a summary of, of verse nine. Look at it one more time. Verse nine, they, these are the deacons, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. On the one side, that could refer to a doctrinal conviction. This is my doctrinal conviction. I, the mystery of the faith is a reference to the truth of the gospel. Christ came, God in human flesh. He died for our sins. He rose again. He ascended to the Father. We're all called to surrender to him, to trust in him. That's, that's the faith. And the mystery aspect was that this, was, this salvation by faith was for everybody, Jews and Gentiles. They need to hold to that truth, but it can't just be an academic or an intellectual thing. They need to hold to that truth with a clear conscience. Well, how do you have a clean conscience? How do you cleanse your conscience? Well, you can avoid having it get dirty in the first place by not sinning, but you can't get a sinless elder or deacon. That's not going to happen this side of heaven. How else do you get a clear conscience? Well, on the one hand, you do your best to walk in accordance with Scripture. But when there is error, when you mess up, as we all will, there is confession. You confess to God. You confess to those involved. That's how you keep a clean conscience. You keep short accounts. That's what it is to live a holy life. A familiar verse to many of you, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Most of the time, that verse is applied to salvation, but John's using it in reference to sanctification. This is supposed to be the ongoing description of the Christian life. We confess sin, and when we confess sin, we're cleansed. Yes, when you come to Christ initially, you, you believe in Christ, you trust in him, you turn from your sin, you're forgiven and cleansed eternally, but there's a forgiving and a cleansing that happens daily. And Jesus expressed that to, to, John, uh, to Peter when he, when he was going to wash their feet. And Peter said, no, 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 you'll never wash me. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And then Peter said, okay, then wash all of me, my head too. And Jesus says, no, 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 you've already been washed. I just need to wash your feet. And there's a picture there of what it is to come to Christ. We're, we're cleansed from our sin. We're declared righteous. But every day we come to Christ, we're, we're supposed to come to Christ for cleansing, for forgiveness. Like you're, you're out there in the world, your feet get dirty, and you need to be washed. That's what it means to follow Christ. 
That's the example we get also from the Apostle Paul. He knew he was a sinner. Read, read Romans 7. The things I don't want to do, I keep doing. The things I do want to do, I can't do. And yet repeatedly, multiple times in the New Testament, Paul says, I live with a clean conscience. How? He confessed his sin. He repented. He knew Christ had purified him and cleansed him. There's a type of maturity that leads someone to lead their life with a clean or a clear conscience. There's a, there's a visible holiness in their life. They're pursuing Christ. They're confessing sin. And there's an understanding of, of the grace of God. You don't want someone stuck in a leadership position who's regularly feeling overwhelmed by sin. You want someone who knows the grace of God and in that grace is putting sin to death, as Paul put it. You should have a cleansed, holy, purified life. One final characteristic, this comes in verse 10, and this is where we'll end today. A deacon should be tested. So he should be dignified, he should be sober, he should be content, he should be holy, and lastly, he should be tested. Verse 10, Paul says to Timothy, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves Blameless. There's a correlation here to the requirement we read for the elders that says don't take a recent convert. You don't want to take someone, no matter how zealous they are, no matter how zealous they might seem, you, want to, you don't want to throw them into position they're not ready for. I don't think Paul's vision of deacons is, hey, let's put a sign-up sheet in the back. We'll just put deacons at the top and leave a bunch of blanks. And if you want to be a deacon, put your name on that. That's not his vision. His vision was a team of leaders that were part of a community of people, they know the people, and they're careful about finding trustworthy, dependable people and placing them in the appropriate places. An empty spot in an organization is tough. We get that. Oh, we're missing this. We're missing that. But it will be a whole lot more difficult to fill a spot with the wrong kind of person. You have all kinds of unnecessary problems. So Paul says a deacon should be tested first. It doesn't specify how this man should be tested, but, but, but the principle is, is easy enough to understand. There should be evidence in this man's life, not just in the ability to do the job, but in their character, in this man's ability to serve. That's what we saw in Acts 6. Choose seven men full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. You trust them, and you trust their decisions. Make sure this man is trained and tested. Now, in thinking about those six requirements in verses 8 through 10, well, I should note one distinction. There's something that's not there, but it is present in the description of an elder. For the most part, if you think about them, they might use different words, but the ideas are the same. Both elders and deacons serve as examples to the church. But what you don't see in the requirements for the deacons is the ability to teach. Remember, we covered that with the elders. He must be apt to teach. And the reason is simple enough. The calling of a deacon is primarily a call to serve. It's not a teaching ministry. It's a serving ministry. Hopefully that's a simple enough concept. God has designed the church to have two groups. God has given us everything we need to organize our church for the glory of Christ. He, God, more than us, more than our elders, God wants our church to be successful. God wants us to be effective as we fulfill the mission of Christ. And God wants us to enjoy being a part of his people. That joy is all the more enhanced when you have the right people in the right places doing what they're supposed to be doing. We have two questions left, and we'll leave them for next time. 
And that's starting in verse 11. What about women? Can women serve as deacons? And then more practically speaking to our own church, what are deacons going to look like here at First Bilingual Baptist? We'll get to that, uh, Lord willing, in just a couple weeks. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your clarity, for your design. These are simple, basic things, it seems, but so easily ignored in the world because we look at other criteria. We praise you for the design you've given us and for your word that has so clearly given it to us. We want our heart to be aligned with yours. We want a healthy, organized church. We want healthy relationships. We want strengthened members. We want things to be moving for the glory of God. We know sin is real. We know there are going to be difficulties, relational difficulties, administrative difficulties, difficulties with facilities, difficulties in the lives of our members. We want to be able to address those things in a way that's helpful and honoring to Christ, in a way that showcases that though the curse is real, in Christ that curse is undone. So we pray you help us. Help us as a church move in this direction. Help us individually as well. Help us all think about our own gifting, our own contribution. Help us find those areas and ministries in which we're best and most effective for the glory of Christ in the church. I thank you for the history in our church, the role models that we've seen, formally and informally, men and women who have shown us what it is to serve with, with grace, with wisdom, with compassion and with integrity. We pray you give us the same convictions and help us serve as models to the next generation as well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.